Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us, allowing us to assemble together. We ask now that you would be with each of us. Let us learn from your word tonight. Lord, I pray for clarity of of thought and word. And Lord, that you would encourage us in our service for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, What is called a harmony of the Gospels, meaning we're taking... All four gospel accounts, we're putting them uh, together and trying to get the entire picture that is painted by the four different testimonies. Now, uh, some people, as they do this, they want to uh, uh, emphasize the differences or the possible contradictions in the four accounts. Uh, we want to emphasize the agreement in the four accounts. And um, there are, uh, it is very interesting as we go through, we read, I, I read what people say, and one of the things that we definitely have here is the Gospels were written before wristwatches. Uh, before cell phones, uh, before this time. And so the time keeping, the time element in here is not near as important to the writers of the Gospels as it is to you and I today. I mean, how many of you have ever just forgotten your watch and forgot your cell phone and found yourself outside and you're trying to figure out what time it is? Isn't that frustrating? Even though you know you're only going down to drop a letter in the mailbox, just not having access to time for those few minutes, I don't know what good it's going to do you or me, but, I mean, it bothers me when I can't just go, I forgot to put my wristwatch on tonight. And uh, But I have a clock in the back of the auditorium here where I can keep a watch on things. Uh, Why are we like that? It's just our culture. Could we allow the disciples living in the first century to be just a little different than we are? In fact, the greatest problem that we have as we study history is that no matter who writes the history, no matter who is studying the history, we have a tendency to put ourselves and our understanding of reality into the story. And that makes history difficult because things that were a big deal back then, nobody cares about today. Things that we care so much about today weren't even thought of in that day. How would you like to live without any plausible way to keep track of minutes, uh, of even exact hours? I mean, the proper timekeeping piece in Jesus' day was what? A sundial. And never fails to amaze me how a commentator will go back and say, on Nisan 14, which is the first day of Passover, was on Thursday in the year 33 A.D., Now, I don't know about you, but I doubt the veracity of anyone that would make that statement. Because we're not sure of the day of the week. Because of leap year and calendar changes and all of these things that have happened over the years, maybe we should just let the Bible record tell the story rather than trying to interpose our calendar on top. And that's what we're working here is we have Jesus arriving at Bethany probably Friday before Passover. I mean, before Sabbath. Sabbath was a time of rest. The dinner where Jesus was anointed by Mary was Saturday night after Passover was open. Over, it would be the next morning, which would be our Sunday, that Jesus would ride the donkey through the eastern gate into the temple of Jerusalem 
with the children crying Hosanna to the son of David, he goes out and lodges in Bethany that night. Monday night he comes in. A Monday morning, I'm sorry, he comes into the temple. He sees the fig tree. It has leaves on it. If there are leaves on the fig tree, what is there also supposed to be? Figs. But there were none. And so Jesus cursed the fig tree. The disciples uh, that were paying attention, i.e. Matthew, uh, the fig, saw the fig tree die. The next morning, the rest of the disciples noticed the fig tree died. And Mark's report. And so we can go and say, well, there's a contradiction. Or we can simply say the natural occurring events that happened there. Jesus taught two days in the temple. Luke sums the whole two days up, and on those days, Jesus taught in the temple. John skips over the whole thing. He goes from uh, Jesus riding the donkey through the gate of Jerusalem to the Last Supper, which we believe would have been on Wednesday night. And he skips the whole thing. And yet, once the supper is over, as we go through tonight, John is going to give us chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 that happened in just a few minutes as Jesus leaves the upper room and is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, where would we be without John chapter 14? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. God used the Holy Spirit and the personalities and the lives of the apostles to give us this record. And so when things aren't exactly 100% in agreement, they don't just fit in our uh, stopwatch time understanding how about we give the apostles the benefit of the doubt rather than trying to find problems with our Bible? Amen? It, how you approach the scriptures depends on what you find in them. If you go to the Bible believing that there's all kinds of problems and contradictions, what's, what are you going to find? Problems and contradictions. Because God's understanding is a little bigger than yours. Amen? And I will tell you, God purposely put some things into this scripture so that those who want to be confounded and leave the Bible alone will have an excuse to do so. But if you will just believe that it is the record, recorded acts of, of God, that God put these words here, we just don't have all the conflict. We have Jesus teaching two days in the temple. This ends with him seeing the widow cast the two mites and what is known as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus has prophesied the destruction of the temple. The disciples make a mistake. They say, Lord, when shall these things be, the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? They put the whole thing together. And you know what Jesus did? He answered them together. But then we have the rest of the Bible that teaches that the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD, is not the end of the world, is not the coming of Jesus. These are three separate events that will be fulfilled in their due season. And so... We now have the next morning, this is Wednesday, and uh, we'll just pick up in uh, Mark chapter 14. And verse 13. Well, let's get verse 12. Here's a time reference for you. And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? 
And so Jesus gives them instructions to go into the city of Jerusalem, find a man that is carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. When he goes into the building there, the house, they're to ask the owner of the house if uh, to make, they're not supposed to ask him, they're supposed to tell him, basically, make ready and let, we will have the feast of the Passover there. Now we go to John chapter 13 and verse 1. And here's another one of those apparent time contradictions. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the, this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He said, Now how do you reconcile before the Passover and on the day of the Passover? Well, as simple as we can do it, when was the Passover? The, an, the lamb would be slain at the temple. We'll take our time period. We have two days teaching in the temple. It's Wednesday. The Peter and John would go to the temple. They would get in line with the other representatives of the families. You were to eat the Passover as a family, as a uh, social group, if your family wasn't large enough, then you were to get another family with you so that there would not be a lot of leftovers from the lamb. So you would have representatives of a million and a half people standing in line at the temple to get their lambs for the Passover meal that would happen that night. Does that sound even possible? Well, maybe that's why we have a little confusion in the time here, amen? But simply, they had to get the Passover lamb the afternoon before the Passover feast was celebrated on the next day, which began at sundown. So the preparation was made. They went out, and at night, as they were to eat the Passover, Jesus took his disciples and made them as his family, and they partook of the Passover meal together. And so here we have them having the Lord's Supper, I mean, uh, the Passover meal. What we call the Lord's Supper, it was instituted by Jesus at the end, and we're going to try to just go through the events as they unfolded. John chapter 13, if you're still there, one of the most unusual stories in all the scripture. It says here, verse 2, the supper being ended, and the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. Verse 5. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Jesus now washes the disciples' feet. Now, how was Passover to be eaten? It was to be eaten with your shoes on and ready to go because that's how the children of Israel ate that night that they were literally thrown out of the land of Egypt. And so Jesus now unbinds their sandals and begins to wash the disciples' feet. He gets to Peter, and of course Peter's going to make a scene. And it seems like that John just loved to record those things. Uh... And it is a good thing for us because, I don't know about you, but I seem to identify a little more with Peter than I do with the silent apostles for some reason. Uh, Peter spoke up and he said, Lord, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you're none of me. See, I've heard all kinds of preaching on how 
if you don't live a certain way here, you're, going, you're not going to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. But Jesus gives us the example here. It is not Christians who will serve at the table. It's not angels who will serve. It is Jesus who will serve. Now, if that doesn't do something to you, there's something wrong with you. But this was the tradition that is actually connected to the Jewish marriage as well. The husband would come and he would get his bride and he would take her to his home and to take care of her at the wedding time and the feast would then follow at his home. Who was in charge of the feast? Well, the groom was in charge of all of those things. I don't know, I kind of like it uh, that way. When a, when a young lady gets married, uh, dad ends up with some awful big bills. Looking, uh, well, I don't know if I'm looking forward to it, but we've got a few weddings to endure before if Jesus tarries his coming here. But wouldn't it be neat if the groom had to pay for everything? Of course, if that had happened to me, my wife wouldn't have gotten much of a wedding, I'll tell you that. So maybe we'll just enjoy it our way, but understand the Bible. Jesus is totally fulfilling all of the pictures in the Bible simultaneously. And if you're not careful, you're going to be confused as to why the Lord did these things. He then told his disciples that he set an example for them that we as his disciples should not strive to be the greatest or the leader or any of these things, but we should with love and humility serve one another. And you know what? That would solve an awful lot of problems, now wouldn't it? And that's how Jesus gave the example. Guess what? If we understand correctly, Jesus washed Judas's feet. Do you get that? So Jesus washes the disciples' feet. The main dinner portion had ended. Jesus then points out the betrayer. Follow right along in John chapter uh, 13, if you're there. We come down to verse um, 14. Let's get the summary here. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done unto you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Now just a note here. There are some churches that have added a third ordinance. Uh, the ordinances of the church, we call them that, is because they are ordered by the Lord. The first is baptism. John the Baptist showed us how to do that. And Jesus continued following the pattern. And though Jesus did not baptize, his disciples did. The second is the Lord's Supper, which is to be instituted this night. And some have tried to add foot washing. Now here's where the problem is with foot washing. We don't find it in the book of Acts. We're not given instructions as Paul gave on the Lord's Supper in the book of Corinthians. Jesus here explains that we are to have a servant's heart. Do you know you could wash somebody's feet and act of humility and be proud about it?
But you can't serve somebody and be proud about it, can you? And keep serving, which was what Jesus was saying. So what, what he is teaching here is the heart of the Savior. He serves us. He was here to take away our sins because we couldn't do it ourselves. He is here to take care of us. And what should we do with the life that he gives us? We should invest it in others. Will that make you seem different possibly even radical in a me-first world in which we live? How about it? I mean, we, ha- we live in a world where everybody's trying to be me-first. I want to be different. I love it. I want to be different. So I dye my hair 14 different colors and go and get somebody to punch my body all full of holes in all kinds of different and weird places and somebody else comes and they do exactly the same thing, only the holes are in different places and the colors are in different places. But if you really want to stand out in the crowd, invest your life in serving others. Guess what? You will be a strange duck indeed, will you not? What happened to you? Don't you care about yourself? Don't you take care of yourself? I like it. Somebody said, well, if you don't toot your own horn, nobody else will. Well, that works with the saxophone. I don't share reeds with anybody. Amen? That would be sick. But when it comes to self-promotion, you let God do the tooting, and you get busy serving. Jesus is teaching that the night he was betrayed. Amen? So now Jesus points out the betrayer. He says, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come that when it is come to pass you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And of course, we've emphasized this as we've gone through this before. Jesus makes this announcement at really the most joyous moment in the Jewish year as they celebrate the Passover, being set free from the slavery of Egypt. They've just celebrated the meal. They have remembered all of the things that happened that night, how the God brought them out of the land of Egypt and through the Red Sea and through the wilderness into their land. And Jesus said, one of you 12 is going to betray me. And all the disciples went, okay, Judas. No, they didn't, did they? What did they say? Is it I? Am I the one that's going to betray you, Lord? They had no clue that Judas had already met with the chief priests and Pharisees and had planned the betrayal of Jesus. All he had to do was give the word and the soldiers would follow him to wherever Jesus was. It was to be a private, quiet place where the multitudes weren't so that they could have him in their power before anybody knew about it. They weren't going to allow him to turn the tables on them and trap them like he did in the temple with the question of John's baptism and the other things that Jesus would would do. 
There was not going to be any opportunities for Jesus to walk away from this. They had it all planned. And the only people who knew about it was Judas and the chief priest and Jesus. Jesus said the scriptures must be fulfilled. Now, our Calvinist friends like to read into this passage that Judas was chosen and had no choice about it. But John clears that all up when he tells about the anointing of Mary. He says, Judas was a thief. He bare the bag. He was the treasurer. And he stole from it. I always wondered how he got that accomplished. I mean, they lived together for three and a half years. Judas must have been in the habit of sneaking off somewhere by himself and finding a vending machine and getting himself an extra whatever uh, they had in those days. I don't know. But he couldn't enjoy the excess what he was stealing from the bag while everybody was watching, could he? That tells us that Judas had already rejected Jesus in his heart long before tonight. Long before Mary anointed him with that very costly and precious ointment. There had to be a betrayer. Judas volunteered for the job. But God knew he would and planned his life accordingly. Therefore, we have the sovereignty of God and the free will of man not working against each other, but working in perfect agreement with each other. Just like we do the time element in the stories here if we stop getting caught up on the stopwatch. Amen? And so Judas now leaves. We believe that at this time... Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. It's amazing how few verses deal with this. Verse 26, And as they were eating... Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now, here we have the Passover meal, the Seder is, as it is called today, was finished. Jesus then washes the disciples' feet. They're sitting there, they're having fellowship around the table, they're thinking good and happy thoughts, and Jesus explains to them that one of the twelve is going to betray him. He says, it's him whom I give the sop, and he just dips the bread into the vinegar that was there, and he gives it to Judas, and Judas leaves to betray Jesus. Now Jesus, in a matter of just a few moments, takes a piece of Passover bread. Now, when you think of the word bread, what do you think of? Big, round loaf of bread, right? I mean, especially 12 guys. I mean, uh, these little things that you buy at the grocery store, I mean, that wouldn't go very far. But that's not Passover bread. Because Passover bread was unleavened. It was just flour and water. There was no, um, no yeast because there was no time the night that the children were thrust out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt to allow the bread to rise. And God had made a commandment to remember that. 
there was to be no leaven in the homes of the Jewish people during the week of Passover. In fact, uh, they still follow that today. They have added all kinds of traditions. They have, they're supposed to leave a little bit of leaven in one of the cabinets so the elder father or patriarch of the family can find it and, and rid the house of Passover. And, uh, of course, they had a tradition of burning it and the NYPD got into, I mean, NYFD, the fire department got into this thing. They're going to burn down buildings. No, they've been doing it for centuries. Just leave them alone. Amen. Uh, but they had all of these traditions that are attached to the Seder meal. Jesus took a piece of Passover bread, a piece of matzah. And he broke it and he passed it out. This was not part of the meal. It says, as they were eating, what do you guys do on Thanksgiving Day? You have the meal, right? But how many of you, the favorite part of the meal is after the meal is over and you just walk by and pick off a little piece of this and pick off a... I mean, that's my favorite part. That's what the disciples were doing. They were enjoying the fellowship. Jesus kind of spoiled that because he wanted them to think serious thoughts here. And he hands them a piece of matzah and he says... This is my body, which is broken for you. Now, did he say he transformed that piece of bread into his flesh? No, that was the invention of men, my friend. It was a remembrance. This night, looking forward to the events of the cross, when our church celebrates it, we look back in time to the finished work of Christ. There is no grace in the bread. Your salvation is not imparted to you in the elements of the Lord's Supper. If that's how you got your salvation, don't you think there would have been a little bit more than three verses in the Bible talking about it? How many verses talk about his crucifixion and his resurrection? Lots and lots and lots and lots of verses. How many verses talk about this? Two or three verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and about ten verses in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is an ordinance. This is how we remember Jesus' death, not recreated. Amen? He then took the cup, and passed it around to the disciples. What was in the cup? Wine. That's what the Bible says. Somebody says, did Jesus drink fermented wine? No. You can't find fermented wine used in a good sense in your scriptures. Wine is, biblical wine is grape juice. I remember when I was a little kid, people said, ah, Jesus had to drink wine because, you see, until Welch's came along, there was nobody that knew how to preserve grape juice without it becoming wine. Did anybody else ever hear that lie? I mean, I believe it was very sincere people that told me this. Until I read in a history book that the Greeks had recipes for preserving grape juice that predated Jesus by several centuries. The Italians, in the 1850s, when a gentleman wrote a book on this subject, claimed that the best wines were the unfermented ones. So, Jesus used pure grape juice to picture... And it always says the testament of my blood, not my blood. It was showing the symbolism here. And as Jesus shows this symbolism, verse 30 says, And when they had sung in hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And do you know why I like to end our services with a hymn? It's because of this verse right here. Do you have to end your service with a hymn in order to be a biblical church? Absolutely not. 
But that's what they did. And we've sang the same hymn for over 20 years now. And almost every service, except our prayer meeting, we end with singing, Take the Name of Jesus with you. Because that's what you're supposed to do when you leave this place. Amen? Amen. And that's our tradition. If we have to break that tradition someday, we will. It doesn't make you more or less spiritual. But we just follow as simply as we can. And so they sang the hymn after the Last Supper. Now Jesus turns to the disciples. He's already told them that one of them is going to deny him. He now tells them that they're all going to run away and hide, the eleven that are left. They're all going to forsake him. And of course, Peter speaks up again and says, Lord, I'll never forsake you. And Jesus says, Mark puts it poetically, before the cock crows twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter denied the Lord three times before the sun came up the next morning. But you see, if we go back to the book of John, we put this in context. Verse 38 of chapter 13 says, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. He said, but that's chapter 14. Yes. But chapter 14 was put in there sometime in the 12 or 1300s and refined as printing came along. In John's retelling of this story, he tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the sun comes up tomorrow morning. But let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he goes into one of the greatest and deepest discourses in the entire scripture on what we would call theology proper or the person of God. Jesus had been teaching his disciples for three and a half years, and yet it is in these few moments that we have him summarizing everything that he has taught them before. And John records that summary in John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Look at verse 34 of chapter 13. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye, should also, that ye also love one another. By this, man, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye love, if ye have love, one to another. Isn't that a great command? That should be the defining characteristic of true Christianity. Jesus explained it as they were leaving the upper room on their way to Gethsemane. John chapter 14, he gives the promise of his coming. Philip says, show us the Father. And what does Jesus say in, uh, in verse 9? Jesus said, have I been so long time with you, Philip? And Have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Jesus, more clearly than any other passage in Scripture, is identifying himself as the physical appearance of, of Almighty God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then he comes down here in verse 16 of this same chapter and says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. You see, that indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we rely upon every moment of every day to live for Jesus Christ had not totally been fulfilled yet, for Jesus had not yet resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven. That's what was going to happen on the day of Pentecost. Jesus was telling us that the Holy Spirit was going to come. And we go through this passage, and it says he's going to teach us all things, and we get to chapter 15. And I wish we had time tonight to just go through this, but if we went through, started in chapter 13, and just did the teachings of Jesus on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, we could be two or three years just trying to make all the connections to the other passages of Scripture and teach what Jesus simply said in that 10 or 15 minute walk from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know about you, but it just amazes me where all of this comes from. 15 is abide in me, for without me ye can do nothing. 16, it says that the Spirit is going to lead us into all truth. And we will pray to God the Father in Jesus' name that our joy might be full. That's John chapter 16. 17 is the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. If you want the Lord's prayer, it's not our Father which art in heaven. That was a prayer to teach the disciples how to pray. The Lord's prayer is John chapter 17 where he talks about all of the greatest things that we argue about and wonder about in quote-unquote Christian circles today, Jesus answers them in his prayer to the Father. The number one problem we face today is how much of the world are we going to allow in the church? Some of you may remember a day when there were certain churches that you went into And if you were not dressed properly or if you had a gold ring on or any kind of jewelry, they would stop you at the back door. And they would say, listen, ma'am, the hem on your skirt is too short. You cannot come in this church. Uh, uh, Sir, you have a, a, a ring on your finger. I wear a ring to keep my finger from getting the tendon in my finger from getting more damaged than it is. Uh, If I went into one of these churches, I would have to take this off because you can't wear a ring according to their tradition. That's not what Jesus taught. But he also didn't teach the church ought to be like a nightclub, just cleaned up a little bit. He didn't teach that we ought to live as much as we can in the world, competing with the world, striving for worldly things, and then come to church on Sunday and say, praise Jesus. Read John chapter 17. Here's what it says. Verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify, that means make holy, separate them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You know, the question I would like answered by some of these contemporary Christians is what did you get saved from? You wear the same clothes, you get the same tattoos, you drink the same liquor, You show up at the same clubs and have the same good time that you did when you were unsaved. The only thing you do is substitute a few Jesus words in there instead of cuss words in the music. What did you get saved from? Jesus answered those questions here. He says His truth is to separate us from the world. I get tired when people say, you're just not a reflection of mainstream Christianity. Excuse me? I, I never have desired to be a reflection of mainstream Christianity. 
because John and Charles Wesley said they were called of God to bring salvation to the Church of England because it was a church, but nobody was saved in it. Now, if you can have church and nobody's saved, how can it be Jesus' church, my friend? You see, it can't be. Not everything that calls itself church is church. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. He said, he prayed that he would be glorified through the lives of his people. Now let me ask you a question. How many of us have done things this week that did not bring glory to our Savior? We all have my hands up. I'm not going to lie. What do we do? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because He's the one that takes care of us, not the other way around. He was showing the disciples all of these things. The last night before His betrayal. The deepest and most complete theological picture of God proper, what we call theology proper, John chapter 14. Almost everything we know about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, if you like theological terms, pneumatology, John chapter 14. Everything that Christ would do and wanted to do in our lives, John chapter 15, 16, and 17, Christology. You want theology, it's right here on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it all happened in less time than it took me to preach a sermon. Jesus did all of this on the way to Gethsemane. You talk about a great Savior. Talk about a great teacher. You talk about in-depth knowledge. Wow. It's here. And Jesus shared this with his disciples in these chapters. You want a blessing? Go home tonight. Instead of watching the news and learning all the bad stuff going on in the world, read John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Tell you what. That's, that's like five pages long. How many of you have already read more of the newspaper than that? Hello? Oh, that's right. We don't read newspapers. How many of you have read more articles off the websites today than that? All right, try to be keep up with the times, all right? Culturally relevant and all that stuff. But the simple truth is, it will be more work to read those few chapters of the Bible than to read the whole way through the newspaper. Because there's more information there than there, are, than there is in most textbooks. They claim to teach the subjects that are being dealt with right here. So bypass the textbooks and read what God said. Amen. And we have a perfect picture here as John just takes the wide-angle lens of the Gospels and focuses it in on the words of Jesus Christ in these short time period. If we take the the Passover dinner finishing from Jesus washing the disciples' feet, uh, describe, you know, pointing out Judas as the betrayer, though none of the disciples knew that. Jesus then 
institutes the Lord's Supper, they sing a hymn, they walk to Gethsemane. Couldn't have taken over an hour. The whole thing. And yet I challenge you, none of us could live everything he talked about in that hour. If that does not teach us just a little bit about the greatness of Christ, I just don't know how else to do it. We serve the living God and all God's people said. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in prayer tonight. Lord, we ask as we look at these events, it just is amazing It is beyond my comprehension how you covered all of these incredible subjects just to sit and to think about them takes hours for each subject yet Lord you went through all of them in just a few moments Lord we ask that you would teach us to think about your words And to understand again, as we already know, but to understand again how great you are, how much you love us, how much you have done and are doing for us. And Lord, that the mere tokens that we can do as your servants, it's just, Lord, as Paul would put it just a few years from the writing and the speaking of these words, it's our reasonable service. Help us to see these things. And Lord, when we do things that irritate one another as members of this church, that we would remember that your love covers all sins, your blood paid for every sin, and that, Lord, we need to keep our eyes upon you. Help us, Lord, to dedicate and rededicate our lives to your service. Before we finish that prayer, maybe the Lord has spoken to you and you'd like to add a few requests of your own to that prayer. The altar is open. We won't be long tonight, but we'll give you an opportunity to slip out and spend some time in prayer with the Lord.